Hello, vinyl lovers. I'm Antonio Staropoli. And I'm Chris Myers. And you're listening to Taste of Vinyl. I am super excited to hear about everything that Macintosh Group has to offer. I think it's Macintosh. You're thinking, you're thinking of Apple. No, <laughs> no, no. And we're going to clear that up right now. All right, welcome, welcome listeners. <laughs> On today's episode, we have a very cool guest with us. He's the National Sales and Marketing Director for the Aspirational Audiophile Company that you've heard us mention on numerous episodes, the Macintosh Group. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Coates. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you for being so, on. so much for coming. And as we mentioned, you are the National Sales and Marketing Director for Macintosh Group, but specifically Sumiko and Project USA, correct? That's right. Yeah, we've got sort of one big happy family under the Macintosh Group. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, Macintosh out of Binghamton, New York, beautiful US built, US manufactured electronics, been around since the late 1940s. Beautiful stuff. Wow. Um, so that's awesome. our, our marquee brand that we kind of post up underneath under the group. Uh, we also own Sonus Faber, which is a beautiful Italian loudspeaker company based out of Vincenza, Italy. Uh, we also own Sumiko phono cartridges. So these are the three brands that we manufacture. Uh, Sumiko all happens out of Japan, Sonus Faber out of Italy, of course, Macintosh out of the United States. We also have a distribution wing under the Macintosh group that's confusingly also named Sumiko. And Sumiko, we bring in Rotel, we bring in Project Audio Systems, and Basso Continuo, which is a really beautiful, luxury Italian audio rack company. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Those Italians sure know luxury, huh? Uh, (laughs) Some beautiful stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jeff. So the, the first question that we like to ask our guests is analog or digital? I'm not gonna assume what uh, you're going to say here, but I might have an idea. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to just say yes, please. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, awesome. there's, a, there's a place for both. Um, I was just on vacation last week. It was on, on the plane. I was standing out, sitting out by the lake. And you know what? It is super inconvenient to try to bring a turntable with you on those for those moments. <laughs> sure, sure. So it's really <laughs> yeah. great to have some high resolution, uncompressed music and a good set of headphones. And to be able to join that, enjoy that. Actually, behind me in this system here, I've got a CD player, I've got a streamer, um, and also do a lot of vinyl. Nice. So it's it's really on how you're listening. You know, the key for me, and this is something I've really enjoyed about records and why I started collecting them back when I was a kid, is for that 25 minutes you got a side on, you're listening and you are actively engaged with the act of listening. Yeah. You're into it. That's all you're focusing on. The same device isn't also looking at your Instagram feed. You're not checking your email. You're not you know, doing four other things. You're paying attention to music. Now, there's going to be yeah. times in a day where you can't do that. So sure. that's great. I mean, then I, that'll do the streaming in the background. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, why limit yourself to any one format? Whether it's digital or analog, we live in a time where we have the luxury of being able to take our music with us wherever we want or sitting down and taking the time to to listen and being very intentional about how we're listening. And I think that's a beautiful Absolutely. thing. If I could add one thing to that. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Saturday night listening journey, when you, you're, you're playing music, you've got friends over, 
you know, you're probably not going to have as much fun just adding things to your random to your streaming playlist. But I love waking up Sunday morning, cleaning up the mess, and looking at the stack of records that we had out the previous night, and just sort of reminding, like, oh man, well this brought us to this artist that brought us back to this artist, and then oh, it got a little ladies in here. I don't know what happened here. It's, just, <laughs> it's so That's fun. Awesome. I mean, in that that visceral that portion of playing records, I don't think you can repeat with streaming solutions. Um, so there's you right. know, there's a lot of tactile aspects to playing records that I. Um, that I really appreciate. And it's, you know, the sound is amazing, of course. The performance yes, is amazing. Yeah. Um, but I figure there's really a, a way that you're communicating with what you're playing that's different than when you're listening to a streaming source. That's a great point, you know. And, uh, you know, obviously, we, we've talked about it, how it's such a tactile thing. But I love how you talk about your experience with your friends and just kind of going through these records. And then the next day, being able to shift, like, sift through and just see like, oh my God, like this, this led to that and this and that. And that is so cool, man. That really is. Now, it's not something that you can do with digital, with streaming. But Jeff, we wanted to get into your career. So in the audiophile world, Macintosh is viewed as the aspirational audio company. What do you think it is about Macintosh products that attracts vinyl lovers and audiophiles alike? Mm. I'll speak for myself. For the mm -hmm. very first time I saw a Macintosh system in a shop, this is early 90s, and it was those the glass faceplate, the beautiful blue meters, and then, of course, the sound that came out of that system. It just, it's iconic, and it's something that's very special in a world that, frankly, a lot of the stuff, it's you know, black metal boxes with bent metal chassis, and it's kind of interchangeable. Yeah, totally. The Macintosh is always, it's stood out. It's been visually striking. And then when you turn it on, the ability to just drive any loudspeaker you want to attach to it, that's something pretty special. And that's, I know you can't see it here because of the camera angle, but I, I run a Macintosh integrated amp on this system, drive my son to Spavers. And it, it's sort of a, a strange thing in the audio industry. You have an opportunity to bring home a lot of things and listen to a lot of things. And over the years, I've known people that have been in this business for 25 years that have never actually purchased anything. Uh, I got this Mac amp home and I'm like, nope, I'm writing the check. You're not taking it back. It's my forever. <laughs> so it was a game changer. Absolutely. And there's a lot of great stuff out there, but I find there's, there's something, there's something very special about the, the sound of the big, what we call the auto former amplifiers, the guys that drive, uh, that have an output transformer, not to get too technical. We can get into that any other time, Sure, sure. Uh, but there's, there's sort of a house sound with the Mac stuff. That's a combination of, Really, really low noise, super wide bandwidth, and just ridiculous amounts of power on reserve, which makes them just so fun to listen to. You just mentioned not getting into anything technical, so we won't, but it does bring me to the point that you are an engineer. I call myself engineering adjacent. I okay. went to college with the idea that I was going to be a civil engineer, um, okay. and I ended up being a technical writer. So one of the things that I... I've always really enjoyed technology. I've always loved being able to talk to engineers. And I think one of my favorite parts about that is being able to distill pretty complex technical subjects down into a language that makes sense to, to everybody. So I write a lot of marketing copy. I've written a lot of manuals. I've done a lot of that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I like to go back and wander around in the factory and talk to the engineers and you know, poke around and see, okay, well, what what's going on with this? What's What's this circuit like as opposed to what we were using in a previous model? 
How did, I guess, your engineering adjacent schooling lead you to a career in audio? <laughs> I think like a, a <laughs> lot of people in this business, it was an accident. I'm not like, <laughs> there was down the hill from WPI where I went to college, Massachusetts, there was a, a mom and pop brown and white goods store. So they sold big screen TVs and washing machines and they had one little audio room. Uh, and I got a part-time job there in college. I'd always grown up, loved the stereo at home. I'd been playing with equipment and trying to fix stuff, mostly breaking it, but trying to fix things, you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, but I was super, super interested in some of the other products. And once I got a, a look at the business side of things and started digging into all of the different products that were out there and the way that the way that they could be pieced together to build out a system, I was hooked. That's awesome. So yeah, to the point where you know a lot of my friends got out of college and they took that entry level engineering position and they're designing whatever it is they're doing, you know, designing buttons, <laughs> contact <laughs> <Right>. whatever. <laughs> um, and I said, well, no, I'm going to use this. I'm actually going to go work for a better hi-fi store. Um, and then I started getting involved with better products, uh, really learning a lot more about how to put products together, how to build out a great system how to really uncover what people are looking for on their own personal musical journeys and allow them to let's, let's find the right system that it's going to meet that need. Uh, and I, yeah, never looked back. Um, did that was on the retail side for right around 10 years. Then I had the opportunity to go work on the factory side for Kenwood. And that was like kid in a candy store. They let me loose in the warehouse <laughs> out in Long Beach. And it was like, Oh my goodness, look at all this stuff. I haven't thought of Kenwood in so long, but I remember when I was, you know, when I just got a car, I was like, you know, I was 18 years old and I was like, all right, I want, I want like a six system in my car. This is, this is <laughs> like, it's so ridiculous, right? Now that I think about it, but it was like, sure. you know, I got to have the subwoofers and the amp and the this and the that. So I bought a Kenwood receiver, a Kenwood amp. I think, yeah. I think I had two, I think I had two tens, right? Oh, wow. This thing sounded ridiculous. And I think that the internal, like the speakers around <laughs> were still the stock speakers, but right. it was <laughs> insane. It sounded so crazy. I, I don't have that system anymore, but man, of course. I just remember I had a great experience with Kenwood. That's so funny, man. And I have not thought mm -hmm. about that company in so long. It was fun. I mean, the car stereo is such a, it was such a big part of our journey. I mean, I, I kind of came up in the 90s and that was, you know, 80s and 90s people, the stock stereos were terrible. It's not <laughs> oh, like yeah. today we can get yeah. an unbelievably good stock like system. Like cans. Uh, they, were, they were really bad. So this was, for a lot yeah. of us, this is how we got to first experiment. Because, you know, mom and dad weren't letting me mess around with stuff in the living room. But whatever yeah. I wanted to do in that Chevy Celebrity station wagon, I could take it. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, our CEO, Charlie Randall, um, his first great love at Macintosh is in the first products that he, uh, that he actually engineered and, and worked on as he was coming up as a junior engineer with the Macintosh car, uh, car audio amplifiers. Uh, we had a really fantastic line in the mid to late 90s that actually, I should say mid to late 80s to early 90s. Right. Fantastic stuff. Uh, but it was, how do you shoehorn one of these enormous Macintosh amplifiers into a 12-volt car stereo environment and that stuff they right, right. were out there on the show circuit and so the real perfectionist car stereo people they got a little taste of macintosh wow um, and very cool that we've been able to return to that uh, in recent years not as an aftermarket product 
but just this year, we've actually been really fortunate to work with the folks at Jeep uh, with their Grand Wagoneer oh, wow. and Grand Cherokee products. So now there's a high-end Macintosh OEM car stereo solution um, available no for these products. So beautiful entertainment system available in a couple of flagship Jeep products uh, starting next year. I love that. I was going to ask you ab- about the relationship with with the automobile industry. And so this is like this is just super cool to hear that you know I I'll be able to buy, well, if I've if I can afford it, uh, a Jeep <laughs> that has a Macintosh system built into it stock. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The team worked really hard to incorporate some of the unique Macintosh technologies into a car stereo system that where I shouldn't say car stereo. It's really, it's a, a, a car entertainment system because they do so much more than right. just play music now. Right. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's really very special. We've getting really positive feedback. The team was just out in Chicago at the Chicago auto show, um, had two vehicles there plus a huge Macintosh audio system that they were able to play. So if you actually couldn't sit in the vehicle and get the Mac demo, well, while you were waiting, you could get blown away out in the, in the reception That's area, perfect. Pretty fun. You said those are debuting next year, you said? So they're just on the show circuit now, but I believe right, okay. this is on the this is on the next model year. You'll start seeing these in the Grand Wagoneers and the Grand Cherokee as an option. That's so cool. That really is. You wouldn't happen to know what the price point of those uh, vehicles would be, right? I do not. I can okay. certainly get that to you. We could add it's, it. I'm just going to assume that it's the high-end models. It absolutely is. I know the Grand, the grand <laughs> Wagoneer is closing in on six-figure pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it really? Oh, okay. Man. Okay, because I know the, the Jeep Grand Cherokees can get up there, too, in the, in the six-figure yeah. range. Jeez. Yeah, it's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty stunning system. But it's fun. I mean, so this is one of the things that's, that's really special about Mac. You've got, a, you've got a wide range of different disciplines inside the company. Uh, you've got engineers that can stretch out. We've got partnerships that we can we can reach out and we can talk to our design team. So the Macintosh Group design team is actually headed out of Vincenza, so our industrial design team. So a lot of the look and feel on the new Macintosh amplifiers, a lot of what happens for the industrial design in the entertainment system to win to the Jeeps, our team in Italy had a lot to do with that. Uh, so wow. it's really fun that we're able to bring in all these really creative people that are specialists in their area and just be able to apply that to a wide range of different products and types of entertainment products. So it's not just amplifiers. You know, we can do automotive right. stuff. We can do streaming stuff. We can do loudspeakers and powered speakers and turntables, you know, you name it. Well, so I want to I ask, uh, you know, since you work directly for Sumiko and Project USA, is there anything that either of those companies are doing that are going to be emerging, just like Macintosh is working with, you know, the auto industry with Jeep. Uh, is there anything that we can expect? Anything where you guys may be entering a whole new market? The closest I could say as it relates to Sumiko, we've worked as, a, as partners with Macintosh and that you'll find a lot of the Macintosh turntables. Uh, they're actually coming with, a, with Sumiko Funner cartridges. So okay. that's something that we're, we're designing the cartridges to be used in a wide range of tables. So if you were to pick up like the Macintosh, the MTI 100, very cool powered turntable product as a built-in amplifier of course the wow. turntable vacuum tube preamp stage uh, that comes fitted with a really fantastic Sumiko funnel cartridge from the factory so we're always looking for ways to work together 
That's awesome. And you just mentioned the MTI 100. Macintosh actually offers four different styles of turntables, correct? That's right. So the 2, 5, and 10, these are sort of your traditional hi-fi turntable component. This is mm-hmm, something okay. you connect to a, a stereo system, to the phono input, and this is it's going to be a single device source. Um, the MTI 100, on the other hand, you plug a pair of loudspeakers into it, and you're done. It's wow. a whole system. Uh, so it's actually an amplified turntable product, has a Bluetooth audio receiver, analog and digital input, so you can connect your television to it, a couple wow. of other sources. Really? And you're rocking and rolling. That's, That's a super fantastic. fun piece. So then price point is the MTI 100, the, uh, the top-of-the-line model then? No, it's actually kind of fits between the two and the five. Oh, okay. Interesting. So it's as you, as you move up, the flagship from Macintosh is absolutely the MT-10. It has some very cool technology, that iconic big Macintosh meter on the front panel, which is really fun. It's picking up the actual rotational speed of the platter. And it's using that to drive that meter. So one of my favorite, and this is a silly thing, but we, you know, I'm an old retail guy, so you, you find little silly things to do. But if you walk up to an MT10, <laughs> you just sort of gently rotate the platter. If it's not, if it's not, if it's powered on but in standby, and just rotate the platter, right. and you'll see the meter kind of move up to match the speed of the actual turntable. But uh, yeah, so very cool. special stuff. So they've, you know, Whoa. Mac. Uh, they do some beautiful products, um, and those are all final assembly and manufacturing happens in our factory in Binghamton, New York, for all of those products. And so you actually have a, a Project USA turntable behind you right now. I do. Yeah, so, so this what, is the, what model is that? So this is called the RPM10 Carbon. Um, and this is kind of the fun thing. We, we were talking off-camera a little earlier about how the brands fit together. Project? European manufacturer. We build all of our products in the Czech Republic and Slovakia, headquartered in Vienna, Austria. But little different focus where Macintosh is happier to explore that cost no object, absolute flagship performance. Uh, the project product is typically going to be engineered to get very good performance for a given amount of money. Mm-hmm. So product like this is one of the, the flagships in what Project calls their RPM series. Uh, but this is similar price point to like an MT5 from Macintosh. Okay. okay. Some really cool technologies, a lot of carbon fiber, big, heavy, beautiful aluminum platter, premium bearings, a lot of a turntable. This is regardless of brand, regardless of price point. Uh-huh. You know, it all comes down to the quality of the drivetrain. So right. when that platter's rotating, can it do so quietly with minimal interference, with no rumble? Right. And can it maintain that speed? So a better main bearing, super important. The tone arm. As the arm traces its path across the record, can it move smoothly right. and not pick up any sort of ex- external interference? To give that tip of the cartridge, to position it right in the center of the groove without pushing over towards one side of the groove wall or the other. So again, really good quality bearings, very good quality mechanical system. Does it have proper anti-skate built in in compensation right. so we're not being pulled in towards the center of the spindle? Um, there's a lot of things that go into this. And the great part is you can get very, very good analog playback for a few hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, as you move up the system, you're going to be able to get more detail to get more deep bass impact, better resistance from outside noise, better tracking capability. By the time you get to a more sophisticated cartridge, and a lot of times you're actually, that cartridge is contacting portions of the groove that even on a 30-year-old record that was always played with an old stylical, uh, excuse me, spherical stylus, right. you're playing 
virgin portions of the groove that have never been touched. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So you're able to capture all this musical information that you might not on a more basic system. And that's, that's really, incredible. it's kind of the way that our brands fit together, right? So you can get really excellent, super enjoyable system. We do this across our families, you know, Sonus Faber with their Lumina series, very relatively affordable Italian-built loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. But we go all the way up to the Sonus Faber, which is a quarter of a million dollars. Whoa. Wow. They're, they're yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but there's at as you step into different price points, you know, we can deliver a tremendous amount of musical enjoyment. Um, and then as you you get spend a little more, we can extract a little more detail. And part of it too, we can start using more exotic materials. We can get a little, you know, extract that last tiny little percent percent of performance. <laughs> right. That's amazing. One of the great things that we were talking about earlier with analog is just like there's so many different variables that come into play that mm-hmm. will enhance the audio. So you can you can just continue to upgrade and it's and then you just start noticing things in the music. And it's like it's almost like you are hearing certain things for the first time. It makes listening to an old record that you've had exciting again. Yeah, for sure. I like to tell people that everything makes a difference in an analog system. The question right. is really just, and this isn't an, an insulting way to say it, but it's just how much do you care? Because at some point you're going to be like, man, <laughs> this is awesome. This is all I need. I'm so yeah. happy. Um, I'm not going to make myself any crazier than I already have. Because uh, then you start playing around with things like what kind of mat? Do I use a cork mat? Do I use a cork mat with rubber in it? Do I use a leather mat? Do I use a felt right. mat? Do I use a bare acrylic, acrylic platter? Like, Bare acrylic. That's it. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all <laughs> makes just a difference. Only. But it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. We uh, so we even we've even heard that um, you know nowadays a hundred and eighty gram vinyl is like the thing. It's like the audiophile thing. But we've actually heard that the thinner the record, the better the sound. It's like like one hundred and forty grams. We've heard. I, I, What's your opinion? In my experience, it comes down to the the quality of the stamper and the quality of the mastering engineer when that mm-hmm. when that product was put together. I agree. Right? Okay. So I mean, you listen yeah. to this, some of this stuff from the fifties uh, and sixties, and you know even seventies rock records that were just one hundred forty gram, but it was great material. Meaning the great the vinyl itself was very sure. good quality vinyl. It was an excellent mix that was designed exclusively to be pressed onto vinyl. The stamper was excellent, and they still hold up way better than let's just say a less than somebody that didn't do a very good transfer and then just pressed it on 180 gram because they're like well that's what you do today you know right like, right, it's right. not a great master and you've got a lousy starting product sometimes it's not going to be great yeah. so yeah it's not a it by no means is 180 gram just going to be like yes that's the one thing right. i gotta get well you're um, right and i agreed i'm not one of these people that gets into the dead wax code you know in the center of the record there's little Oh, oh right, right. <laughs> Chris knows about you that. Know, it's like, the, well, uh, you know, you, you got to have this particular guy's initials. If you want to get Led Zeppelin three, <laughs> the only addition to have is this one. Uh, I, right, right, right. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, yeah. It's a little too much for me. Yeah. But, you know, that, that all makes a difference. You know, what, what was the pressing? How far along in that press was it? You know, was it one of the earlier ones that was from a fresh stamper? Or is this record number 10,000 before they threw it away, you know? I can't tell you how many times I've bought 180 gram vinyl and put it on, you know, put it on my platter and then went, wow, this sounds like shit. 
I don't Ooh, like well, this. This is they did not do a good job mastering this. It's yeah, so no, and, obvious, you know. Yeah, and, and sometimes That's they'll the just take they'll just take the MP3s or they'll just take whatever the digital co- version of it is and stamp that on without ever mastering it at all and just be like, oh, here's 180 grams, and it just ends up being a cash grab for those for those people. Yeah. It's and so I, you know, I've got a couple of those where you get a you know an anniversary re-release of a record or something, and you listen to it. It just sort of it just kind of sits there between the speakers. It doesn't really. Right. There's no depth to there's, it. And then you go back exactly. and you, you play the compact disc, or you you know cue it up and on title or Cobas or whatever. <laughs> and all of a sudden, whoa! It's like so wide, and you feel like you could walk around. And it's like, well, why didn't they use this? And then you find yeah. out exactly to your point that they didn't have that particular. Mass, they maybe repress the CD, right? Or maybe they never. Maybe they never recorded it in analog to begin with. Not that you can't well, master a digital into, you know, to to work for analog, obviously. But I mean, if you're just lazy about it and you just want to get your product out ASAP and just want to get that, mm-hmm. you know, money in your pocket, I guess just pressing sure. MP3s to to a, a you know a record is going to you know sure. Someone's I mean, going to buy it and not media. realize. Sure. It's a toy for a lot of people. If you're playing it on your, you know, little plastic tone arm, close and play turntable oh, no. with a built in speaker, you maybe you never even hear it. But that's, that's true. Know, that's a good point. There's yeah. not, uh, it's a totally different medium. It requires right. that the music be mastered for that medium. You're going to have lower, you're, you're not right. going to have the same dynamic range that you will of a, a full uncompressed digital recording. You know, sure. There's going to be some things that you do have to do to tailor it to play back perfectly on on vinyl, right? Uh, but right. if done correctly, it can be an amazing experience. But yeah, to your point, just taking the same thing that you use for your CD master and popping it over to a you know, to your favorite pressing plant and saying, "Hey, I need some records." Uh, yeah, it's not going to work. I think I'm pretty sure that's what they did with uh, "Tell All Your Friends" by for you know taking back Sunday. That's exactly tone. what I was thinking about. That's that's you know we both have that, but it was the first pressing of it. So and you know yeah. any but when you get a first pressing of something and you buy it, no one knows it's that until people play it and they're like, oh, this this sucks. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no reviews on it until everyone actually gets it. So yeah, you know. well, and a lot of this stuff. I mean, when it was originally, yeah, anything kind of early to mid two thousands or heck, late nineties on. Yes. It wasn't. It wasn't recorded with analog in mind. No, this is, I figured it, it was, was recorded to be on CD. Point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the question was like, well, are we going to even mess with this and do a radio mix? Like, nah, everybody's got. We're we're not going to get this probably on mainstream radio. We're just going <laughs> to mix it <laughs> right. for CD, right? So we're going to take advantage right. of the CD medium. Um, and they took that same master in many cases and just you know used it to put it yeah. on an LP. That's absolutely yep, yep. what they did for that specific record. Sadly, well, that's yeah. too bad. But what, can, yeah. what can you do? I mean, you could, you could mm-hmm. just tell. Yeah. Let's move back to audio equipment. Uh, so we talked sure. a little bit about Project USA turntables. Let's talk some about Samiko. Sure. So uh, Samiko phono cartridges. We're just about to celebrate our 40th anniversary next year. So really, a wow fantastic line Um, since we've been building phono cartridges these are all individually hand wound in japan Uh, and that's from you could buy a 79 nine dollar sumiko oyster or you could buy a four four thousand five hundred dollar palo santos presentation 
<laughs> and they're all hand, hand built in Japan, which is wow. pretty special. There's uh, very, very few prime manufacturers of cartridges that really know how to do that correctly. And, you know, we're, we're glad to say the people that we've partnered with, have, they're one of the, the best in the business. We've been working with them for a long time. Recently, we've done sort of a refresh to the line and we really wanted to create sort of a house sound. Um, and you heard this with loudspeakers, you know, you heard it, you're like, oh, cool. Well, you like the, you know, the, the Sonus Faber sound. Maybe you like the Klipsch sound. You know, the, the, you know, there's a specific sound that you're like, all right, cool. No, I can, I can get behind yeah. that. Um, that's really hard to do with funnel cartridges. And when you think about it, it's, it's a transducer. Yeah. It's just like your microphone or your loudspeaker. It's converting, in this case, mechanical energy, the movement of the stylus and the groove to electricity. Yeah, uh, right. But there's all sorts of kind of fascinating uh, things with how effective that transfer is. How much noise do you pick up? How do you minimize vibration inside the body of the cartridge itself? Because if that's vibrating and it also causes the stylus to vibrate, that gets converted to electrical that energy and you hear translates. it. Yeah. Right, right. It's the craziest thing. Uh, so we spent a lot of energy um, over the last four years. The brand new lineup starts with what we call the Rainier. It's a $149 uh, phono cartridge. And it goes all the way up the new line, but minimizing any kind of internal resonance. So we're picking up as much information as possible from the tip of the stylus and rejecting as much extraneous information, any other vibration that might be coming in as possible. And as you move up, you get more aggressive stylus profile, you get a more sensitive engine. So basically the stylus and the cantilever it's attached to, it can pick up finer and finer and finer deflections in the groove wall. Interesting. So by the time you get up to some of the low output moving coil designs, I mean, you're, you're able to pick up information in that recording that, I mean, it's, you've just never heard it before. It's a remarkable. <laughs> That's, that's insane. Uh, that's so great. And, and so like, you know, there's essentially there, there are, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are essentially two types of phono cartridges. You have moving coil and moving magnet. Mm -hmm. So when talking about Sumiko, can you tell us like what makes one better than the other? Mm. This is another, uh, yeah. So this is another is tough this one. subjective or? Uh, there's, well, first off, the moving magnets are going to be, that's sort of your, your bread and milk. Most of the phono cartridges out everywhere. there in the world are moving magnet designs. Right. Uh, there's okay. some benefits to a moving magnet. All right. So a moving magnet is typically going to put out more voltage. So as it, as that cantilever moves, its engine's going to produce more voltage. As a result, you don't have to have a super low noise or very sophisticated photo preamp to right. get great sound. Sure. All right. So, and they're universal. They all have pretty much the same electrical characteristics. So if you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a phono preamp and you've seen 47 kilo ohm loading, 47K, that's the resistive load the cartridge wants to see. Every moving magnet phono cartridge that you'll ever run across is designed to work into that load. So you can connect it to an old receiver. You can connect it to a new preamp, a phono preamp, an input on a powered speaker. It's going to work great. The other big advantage to a moving magnet, well, there's two. They're more robust. So typically they're a little bit more... I don't want to say you can go off-road with them, but they're going to handle rough, rougher <laughs> treatment and imperfect records a little bit better than a moving coil design typically mm -hmm. will. Yeah. And heaven forbid, if you do break it, if you break off the stylus, usually 99 times out of 100, they have a user-replaceable stylus. Right. So that means oh, okay. if you did damage it, you can pull the stylus off, you can replace it. And in the case of what we do at Sumiko, you can even move up 
So you could start with $150 Rainier and you could put a two or $300 replacement stylus and actually get better performance without changing the body of the, the cartridge. Thing. Yeah. Without having to remount and rewire and realign <laughs> and all that. So yeah. the downside, moving coils, they're lighter. So this is a good thing. Um, a moving coil cartridge, all that means is at the end of the cantilever, the portion that's actually moving to translate that mechanical energy into electricity, it's the coil instead of a magnet. The coils are going to be lighter than even a small permanent magnet. Mm -hmm. So what this means is we get to, we're going to be able to respond to even smaller deflections in the groove wall and pick up even smaller details that a moving magnet might not quite be able to get. So that's nice. pretty fun. You get to what's called a low output moving coil. You have even less of that coil material on the end of the cantilever. So you can pick up even finer deflections, but the less copper you have, the less coils, the less voltage it puts out. So right. all of a sudden, you have to have a, a very quiet, very high gain preamplifier on the backside yeah. of that cartridge. Right. Um, and this is where I, you know, I get my cousins at Macintosh a hard time. You know, you could pick up a little $400 project phono preamplifier. And it's just like, you know, electrically speaking, this does more work than your 2000 watt power amplifier, you know, because it's, it's producing way more gain. You know, it takes a lot to take a, you know, dot three millivolt signal and bring it up to, to two volts to line level. Dot, dot, like 0.3 millivolt. Yeah. Tiny. That's so very, very, very low. minuscule. Oh, so small. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, wild. So very, very low output moving coils. Um, they also have a wide range of uh, the environment they want to be plugged into. The resistive load that they want to see can also vary widely. So uh, some might want to be plugged into a 50 ohm load. Some might want a 500 ohm load. So we do also something cool with moving coils. We have what's called a high output moving coil which electrically speaking will work with any moving magnet phono stage. So all that means is it looks to see the same electrical environment as a moving magnet. So our most famous uh, Sumiko cartridge was the blue point, now the blue point number two, and now we just introduced the blue point number three. Um, that's a fantastic cartridge that can be plugged into any phono preamp. If it says moving magnet, doesn't matter. It's wow. a high output moving coil, so electrically it works in that environment. So you get some of the benefits, of a moving coil and you get that better separation better detail we can extract more information uh, but you can use it in a that common moving magnet environment best of both worlds kind of thing yeah. interesting yeah so typically i think you'll uh you know my phono stage behind me here i've got uh, one of the projects it's got two inputs i've got one turntable set up with a moving magnet phono stage and that's like the used stuff that you get when you're crate digging you know i clean it up best <laughs> right. you can but it's not going to be perfect you know, and the other one's got that, you know, our Sumiko Starling on this. That's on the RPM 10. Uh, and that's about an $1,800 low output moving coil. Uh, you want to make sure your records are clean. And that's, you know, that you're, you're using that with better, good quality recordings that are, you know, the records are physically in good shape. But there's a wow. place for each. And that's, you know, sure. it's another one of those deflection points. Has your, vinyl, has your vinyl hobby become a problem? I don't know. Do you have two active turntables in your system? You know, do you, are you starting to, <laughs> I only play certain records on this stylus. Hey, you know, that's, that's where your family might require a little, a little more explanation about what the heck you're doing in this room. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, you know, you started talking uh, a bit about, you know, preamplifiers and mm -hmm. kind of going back to our earlier question, our first question about 
analog versus digital. Um, sure. Can you give us, maybe this is just, again, a subjective thing here, but tube amps versus solid state. Mm-hmm. So would you say, because obviously, you know, analog audiophiles love analog, they love tubes, they love the warmth and, and, and all that. So would you say that one is superior to the other? Uh, in, in my experience, no. Macintosh actually had a sort of an interesting journey with vacuum tubes. They were one of the early manufacturers to move away from vacuum tubes and go completely oh. solid state for a few years. Wow! And then inside the company, they had a group of engineers that said, you know what? We can make a tube preamp that's every bit as quiet and every bit as linear as anything you're doing with transistors. And they proved oh. that they could do that. And we introduced, we reintroduced tubes into our, some of our products. So there's really, you know, tubes are just a, another way to create gain, right? So we want to take a small signal and make it big. In a perfect world, a vacuum tube is going to be identical technically to a transistor. The question is what, hmm. over what range of tones, what, what, what frequency range, what kind of bandwidth are we trying to get through that circuit? And this is where, you know, I think a lot of the Japanese companies, especially, were really pushing out these super wide bandwidth, you know, the, the old, the, Again, I, I get nerdy. I'm sorry, but the DC to light frequency response, it's just like, you know, well, what, what's this thing do? It'll, oh, it'll make square waves. It'll do this. It'll, you can put a 300 kilohertz audio signal through this at no loss. It's like, so what? You know, and <laughs> what we found, what we found with a lot of these super clean, all transistor, very wide bandwidth designs, these high speed amplifiers, um, is that a lot of them started sounding pretty clinical. Because one of the ways that they were doing this with was with a lot of feedback, you know, they were doing other things to the signal in order to just maximize these two or three criteria. So whereas people started listening to their old hi-fi tube hi-fi that was in the garage, and sure, it only played from like forty cycles to fifteen or sixteen thousand cycles, but man, did it sound good! It had some soul to it. It had some warmth. And I think that's yeah. really what started this tubes versus solid state uh, argument. You know, if you look Debate, at any yeah. of our modern tube products, we don't design them to sound overtly tuby. You know, it's, okay. right. it's going to have a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of extra warmth, just a little extra butter in the roux. You know, it's just something <laughs> to, to sweeten it up a bit, uh, but they're not designed to sound super euphonic and just sort of old fashioned. You know, it's not that equivalent of, you know, a real comfortable ride with a lot of oversteer. You know, and I think a lot of people think about that with tubes. They're like, oh, it's going to be so like warm and laid back. You know, we can do that with solid state too. You know, it's just careful design of a circuit, incorporating the right devices in the right product where it makes sense. Most of the Macintosh products today, you'll find vacuum tubes in the, the preamp stages because that's where it can make the biggest difference. You know, we can use those tubes where they don't have to swing a tremendous amount of voltage. We can right. build a circuit around them that they're kind of protected, if you will. And they can operate in a, in a way that they're super comfortable and they're going to sound great. The other advantage of those preamp tubes is they run a lot cooler and they last a lot longer. You know, the big power tubes. You know, if you're, you're a guitar player. Chris, you, Chris is a guitar yeah, player. Yeah. 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 Yep. So, you know, I mean, you're overdriving those, you know, ELA, EL34s or KT88s or whatever your you know yes. your guitar amp you need a new set of tubes every year and a half every year wow. oh yeah yeah you know? blow them out uh, that is right. a really interesting point that's not something that I ever really thought about so you're saying that 
you know, if you if you do want vacuum tubes, if you do want to incorporate that kind of thing into your setup, mm-hmm. it's probably better to have it in the preamp stage rather than the amp stage because it just runs cooler. Right. And I, I'd say for a lot Makes of us sense. that are tube curious, yeah, uh, but maybe aren't ready to go full tube power amps, uh, <laughs> this is a great way to do it. You know, you start it with, in, on the project side, we have a little $450, $450 phono preamp that uses a pair of vacuum tubes. It's perfect. It's a great Sick. way to get in. You know, on the Macintosh side, the MA252 and MA352 integrated amps, they use yes. vacuum tubes for the preamp section and then a super reliable solid state power amplifier for the backside. Wow. So it drives the loudspeakers. But those tubes will last you for years. Okay. So here's what I want to do. Okay. <laughs> you tell me, and this is just you. Ready. Okay. You mm-hmm. you have an unlimited budget. Doesn't matter. Okay. I want you to build the perfect setup. Mm. What does that consist of? What does that what does that look like? That's really a tough one for me. Because it's yeah. so much of it has to do with the room you're going to put it in. That is true. Uh, I've heard acoustics and stuff. Yes. I I have heard so many great products that just sounded terrible because they were in the wrong (laughs) environment. The wrong room, yeah. So for me, I'm absolutely in love with the Sonus Faber loudspeaker house sound. So for me, we have a loudspeaker called the Amati, which is absolutely glorious. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of furniture you ever lay your eyes on. And it fits in most, if you got a, 400 square foot room and you want to get amazing sound in it perfect amplification i'm probably not going to go crazy and you know the macintosh model blocks and you know the big mac line arrays for loudspeakers are great i don't live in that space (laughs) so for me it's probably something like an mc 462 and our new 450 watt per channel stereo power amp um, which will drive any loudspeaker under the sun Okay. To, in a typical domestic environment, they, I just haven't run into a space where I've ever, I personally would need more. Preamp in the current line, probably a C2700. And then I, I got to give, uh, give some props to the home team. I would do a big project turntable because, you know, I'm also <laughs> the project guy. Uh, <laughs> phono cartridge. That's, uh, phono cartridge, de- going to depend. Um, we just introduced a product right around $2,800 called the Celebration 40. It's a 40th anniversary Ooh. product for Sumiko. That's unbelievably good. Just a glorious low output moving coil. But it would definitely have that in the stable. And then probably a really excellent moving magnet, something like the Sumiko Amethyst, about a $600 design. But it's something you wouldn't be play, afraid to let your friends queue up records with. And, right. You know, right, right. That'd be the general use cartridge. And I could put that on two turntables because C2700 has two funnel inputs. So I could actually use them Ooh, both. That's hey cool. now. Or something like. Phonobox RS2, it's a $2,000 fully balanced phono preamp from Project that's just fantastic. Okay, well, listeners, you heard it here. This is it. <laughs> one this man's is, opinion. I, was, this is, I like it. Well, your opinion matters, I think, right? If you're that kind of person that just wants to be able to stop your friend's hearts. Yeah. And it's the, the most ridiculous, kind of amazing, visceral experience I ever had was one of our dealers. I'm down in Austin, Texas, one of our... Reference Platinum Dealers is down in Houston. Guys called Houston Audio. Beautiful showroom. But they actually have our three chassis, 2,000 watt monoblocks. So it's a total of six chassis that make up a oh, pair of amplifiers. Man. Driving the, the large, what are the MC 2.1 KW, the big line arrays. The loudspeakers are seven feet tall uh, with oh. the full C, <laughs> C1100 stack. Yeah. 
absolutely glorious. That's a system you really have to be careful with. It's capable of playing <laughs> with almost no distortion at like jet engine levels. Wow. Uh, so Jeez. It's, you know, depends on depends on what you're trying to do. That's a little much for right, me. Right. But, <laughs> uh, but that that was one of the most just absolutely stunning experiences ever. That was the same system we had actually in our in the main large uh, three-story open space in the World of Macintosh Experience Center in New York City. And it could Sweet. pressurize that wow. space to just really satisfying levels. But yeah, I think oh, that's... Um, I believe it. The big takeaway, if there's one thing I'd say when choosing a great system, mm. just figure out what you want to do with it first. You know, it's and, and yeah. be honest about that. If it's if it's something, ah, you know what, we're going to have got hanging out with family. I just want to put some music on. You know, I'm not going to be sitting in that single chair in the middle. I want it to sound great for a wide range of people. Sure. That's going to lead you down to a different group of products that might not necessarily be the perfectionist audiophile product in a line. Right. right. It's going to be something that, that's designed for, for broader use. And that's really what it's all about. I mean, music and a good music system, it's not a, shouldn't be a, a solo endeavor. This should be right. something everybody in your life can enjoy. <laughs> uh, I think that's sort that's of the, a great the audio point, file problem. Yeah, yeah. It is an audio file problem. That's a great point. You want everybody to love it. Yeah. Of course. I want to be able to, you know, the daughter comes in, wants to, she's excited. She's got the new Taylor Swift record. Put it on. Let's yeah. do it. From a, Play it. From a casual listener to a hardcore right. listener. Right. Absolutely. You want to be able to give everybody a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And that's something special about the, the brands that we have in the group. Um, we can actually do that. We can approach it from, uh, I mean, these are beautiful products. They're, great sounding they're great looking they're actually they're a joy to use you know it's that you know when you hold a you know like a really good hand tool or you know if you're cooking you've got good pots or a good knife yeah you know, yes. sure you're getting the same cut generally but <laughs> there's a joy to using a really good tool and that's a really great system doesn't have to be expensive but you feel that and there's a, something that you when you turn it on there's a richness to the sound I hate to use that word tone, but it's really a thing. Yeah, um, no, right. it is. Absolutely. Yeah. We've talked about the ideal setup. Let's talk about your actual vinyl collection. What are you playing on that perfect system? Absolutely. On that perfect setup. Uh, I'm playing stuff I love, typically a little <laughs> louder than I should. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you gotta. <laughs> you know, not always, but, you know, quite often. And I think that's another one of the audiophile problems, if you will. You know, you go to these shows, you, you hear a great system, and they're playing the same, you know, sort of audiophile reference demo tracks. And it's music that's recorded beautifully, but has absolutely no soul. And that, yeah, right. uh, that's, yeah. you know, we, we don't, we really try hard when we're at shows to play stuff that we like, that sounds great, that's yeah. recorded well, but, you know, that it's, its reason for existence isn't just to sound good at hi-fi shows. Um, right. So I'm, yeah, man, I'm, I'm playing the records that I've been carting around since, since I was a kid. I mean, I've got thousands of records now, you know, and a lot of them, it's move after move over the last 25 years. They've come with wow. me and it started with just a couple of boxes. And now I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to move again just because I can't, I can't wrap my head around <laughs> doing it again. It's like there was too many boxes and a, a cube and a half box yes, of records yes. is heavy. So, you know, oh, you've God. got, is you know, it, yes. 40 boxes like that. You, it's like, mm -mm, not doing it. And you started collecting when you were a kid. Yeah. Tell us how that started. 
yeah, so I was sort of, um, you know, that uh, seven records for a penny, you know, it was tapes, records, and CDs were just starting, you know, so you, right. I got a couple of records that way. Uh, embarrassingly, one of my first records I ever got was the San Almost Fire soundtrack, which is still in there. Oh, uh, that's a great oh, movie. movie. Yeah, it is. It was a great yeah, movie. And the, right? and the title track the, is, is amazing. So good. Oh, man. Oh, that's uh, a great soundtrack. Lost Track, that movie. was a fun one. You know, and then I started kind of more cassettes and CDs for a while, especially as we spending more time in the car. Uh, but there would still there'd right, be a, sure. a record or two. Then as the 90s came around and I was spending a little bit more time, you know, out of the car in apartments, you know, back at home, um, I started picking up uh, those sort of limited edition pressings that, you know, it was a band I'd like. And they were also had put something out on LP. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to have that in the, right. the permanent. I'll have the CD for the car, but I'll, I'll buy the LP because it's special and I love it. Sure. Um, and I think like like you guys, a lot of the stuff from that era, that late 90s, early 2000s stuff that was small pressing, it's shocking how much some of these uh, some of these records are going for these days that were only yeah. pressed. It's sort of a vanity project in the 90s, you know? Right, Even right. The represses now, they're doing things for like record store day. These things are getting yeah. repressed. And they... On the same day, I mean, people, I mean, flippers, you know, they, they, they'll go in, it. they'll grab, they'll grab sure. one and they'll just put it up immediately for sale. But yep. like, you can, you can follow it for even like a couple months and it just, the price will just keep going up. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, man, this, this record was bought for 25 bucks or whatever it was. And now, you know, it's 150 bucks, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's crazy, man. It's yep. wild. But there's a couple that, uh, you know, I bought uh, Pearl Jam 10 when it came out. Yeah. Record. Oh, so I've got the oh, you man. know the original Great pressing album. of that that I've been carrying around for Jeez. however many years, twenty five years or whatever. That's worth a lot of money now. It's like yeah, that's yeah. So to crazy, the point man. where like I kind of want to be careful. So basically, anything I bought at the Princeton Record Exchange when I used to drive up from Philly, oh, any of that yeah, stuff yeah. from that period of time, I got to be careful with those because it's there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, but it's you know I think that's the key. It's just you know you're always keep exploring. Don't just buy the same old stuff. You know, find ways to get out there. It's the other thing I love about streaming is this ability to, the ability to get out and really experiment to see what's happening with new artists. Absolutely. I want to ask. So, what is your favorite record? If you do you have one, do you have one that you're just like, man, this is the one record you like play a lot. I love this record. I'm so glad I have it in my collection. Means the world to me. It's your Burning Building record. Burning building record. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a, so I've got a couple. There's so the my favorite album on any media. We'll talk about it in a minute. But I, uh, I actually I was double double prepared here, so I got two. This was cool. um, Jeff Buckley. This is uh, the he's a guy that left us too soon. Mm. He's part of that Twenty Seven Club, you know, guy that oh, wow. came out with a beautiful. A uh, beautiful de- debut record called Grace. Um, and then as he was in Memphis working on this album called, it turned out to be called Sketches for My Sweetheart, The Drunk. Um, he drowned, uh, drowned in the Mississippi River, you know, walked in with his boots right, on in the middle right. of the night. Nobody knows if he killed himself or just it was an accident or what have you. Uh, right. But that, awesome. um, he was somebody that I connected to very, very deeply. And this one, yeah, this was the, yeah, the tag on this is Rock Dreams in Trenton, New Jersey. I picked this up from there back in uh, 1998. Uh, but this is the original Sony pressing of that. And it's just, 
it's one of the best sounding records that I have. And this is not 180 gram. This is a standard 140 gram pressing, but it was just there lovingly mastered. Right, right. Um, the people at Sony really loved what he was doing and they spent a lot of money on this. And uh, he did a great job. There's a couple of tracks on this that are just uh, absolutely stunning. Like, stop me in my tracks every time I hear a couple of radio stations will still play him every now and again, especially around the anniversary of his death. But yeah, this is, this is, this is one for me. But yeah, this is one that uh, scary how expensive that's gotten. Uh, but oh, yeah, yeah. carrying around for a lot of years. The the other, and I don't know if this is the kind of the you know album I could play. My I buy extra copies. I make sure this is like you know the, if there's two uh, that I give away a lot. This is sort of hey, I'm going to go out there and Johnny Appleseed this thing all over the world. Uh, <laughs> in my opinion, the best thing that happened in Boston, Massachusetts, in the early '90s was a band called Morphine. I grew up in Southern New Hampshire, relatively rural area, um, on a heavy diet of hair metal and classic rock. Um, so, you know, <laughs> these are the guys that permanently rec- uh, rescued me from, you know, from that sort of Skid Row, Scorpions, you know, uh, Motley Crue. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not that there's that anything, you know, I still love to listen to some of that stuff. Um, right. But these guys was a very, very different sound. It was a, th- a three-piece, two-string fretless bass, Barry and tenor, tenor sax, often played simultaneously by the same person, and percussion. Wow. Um, really have a unique sound. They called it low rock. But right. um, these guys, when, you know, sort of that, right as a, the, the grunge era was starting to pick up, they, they were sort of right on the outside of that, made four beautiful records fantastic album but this is this is the one that you know i still if you ever see me at a trade show this will be in my bag i'll be playing this for people and i literally morphine, hand out copies cure for pain cure that's for pain. awesome excellent man we want to thank you so much for answering all of our questions regarding project usa regarding sumiko and of course macintosh group uh you are a wealth of information and we really truly appreciated you you know coming on the show and just humoring us and answering our questions about the company oh thanks so much guys i had a blast it's always a always a pleasure to talk music and talk gear and hopefully i'll see you out there in the in the actual world sometime this year Uh, i hope so thank you so much and that brings us to on the platter oh god it's so good Mm, so good and tasty Today, we are talking about one of the records that Jeff was just talking about, one of his favorite records, and that is Cure for Pain by the band Morphine, which was released back in 1993. So, you know, full disclosure here, this is not a band that either Chris or I were familiar with until we spoke to you. And so, you know, we, this is how we were exposed to morphine. So it was yes. a, a first for us. Uh, so we don't have too much, you know, experience with the record. And so all we can really do is, is just kind of talk about what we think the record sounds like to us from our perspective, because it's totally new. I love it. From my perspective, okay, I, here's what I was getting. It sounded very much to me like they were or at least you know vocally perhaps that the the vocalist is a fan of Bob Dylan and i'm not sure if that's just me 
but I definitely, I, I definitely feel like there is a an interesting kind of cadence to the vocals that you don't normally hear. Um, even in the, even in the '90s, there was you know, like you said, it was kind of on the outside of that grunge era, but it was still inside the grunge thing, if that makes sense. It um, sure they they got a lot of play for sort of that late night. It was the late night record. Okay. When you were, you, you couldn't do any more Soundgarden, you know, you wanted to have something that <laughs> right. you could kind of come down to a little bit. Um, Mark Sandman, the lead, lead singer and the bass player in Morphine, yep. um, absolutely a poet. And I totally agree with what you're saying. He, he has this sort of laconic, almost stream of consciousness delivery that totally right. reminds me of early Dylan. Yes. Yes. I don't know if I'm, if this is, if this is correct, but, but, Maybe I got like a like a bluegrass vibe almost. Okay, but they somehow were doing it with with the sax, a jazz so, influence. Yeah, with the jazz. Right, right, exactly. So there was this like jazz, bluegrass. Maybe just maybe maybe not even so much bluegrass. Maybe just like a jazz folk fusion thing with a Bob Dylan kind of spin vocally. So that's what that's what I heard. I could see that. The thing that drew me to these guys, well, there was a lot, but there's a song on this record called Thursday. Yes. That it's uh, just a song about some bad personal decisions and, you know, maybe a relationship yeah. that shouldn't have been. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I love about this song musically is it's like, it's a roller coaster and it's going at about 120% of rated speed. And you're coming into a hard corner and you're, oh my God, we're coming off the rails. And then it somehow comes back in. And I love <laughs> that. You can picture uh -huh. the three guys in the band just like staring at each other as they're recording this going, how are we going to bring it home? How are we going to bring it home? Is this going to be a train wreck or is this going to be brilliant? And I love <laughs> that energy. Um, and that's something that they, that they brought live too. Um, it was a very exciting group to see live. Always was uh, we're super adventurous. And that's really the only reason they existed. This record was put out on Ryko that um, then they got picked up by DreamWorks and then DreamWorks kind of went away. So this is a right, band that didn't right. get a lot of promotion. Their early label did okay, but then when they got brought to DreamWorks, that was it. And then, you know, Mark died uh, actually oh, on gosh. stage in Palestrina, Italy um, at a big festival just outside oh, of Rome. Geez. Uh, oh, but God. just, you know, this was, they were a great band, just kind of missed that. Missed that one big shot to get huge. Yeah. Is they that, were so close. So, so is that, uh, you were just talking about the, the song Thursday. Is that, would you say that is your favorite track? Depends on uh, your depends mood? on how introspective I'm feeling. So I'd the say. In Spite okay. of Me, um, yes. In Love Spite of track. Me is, to, is one to kind of to make you look back. And, you know, if you've got that, if you got one relationship in your life where you found that you probably were, were kind of a jerk, you know, that's a song that you can relate to. Yeah. That's a favorite. Buena. The opening salvo, though, of Donna into Buena. I yes. love uh -huh. how it starts with this really kind of quiet, sort of ethereal saxophone just kind of coming in nice and quietly. And then all of a sudden, out of no place, right. that two-string fretless bass, just that's the iconic morphine <laughs> song open. That at high volumes, it's like, yeah. I don't know what this is, but I want to hear more. Um, I could listen to that forever. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, that is really cool. I, I I do. I also like In Spite of Me. Uh, me too. But the other standout track for me was actually All Wrong. Okay. I like the break I, on I, that a lot. 
Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know. I, there was something about the the pace of that song that I really liked mm-hmm. for me. And I'm a drummer, so maybe that's yeah. Ah, nice. <laughs> Definitely see that. There's some really fun stuff. They're not. This is not a band that was scared of you know just the kind of non traditional percussion. I love that. I mean, this is they have sort of have a little yeah. bit of that collective kind of ethic where they're they're just going to play it. And see if it sticks. Yeah, yeah, very experimental. But this one, uh, this was fun. This didn't actually come out on LP, as far as I know, uh, until right. Light in the Attic repressed it. So this was, I've never had a vinyl copy of this until this was repressed back in 2011. So. I was just going to say, 10 wow. years ago. Yeah. So that must be Which, really, uh, that was probably really exciting for you when that probably happened. Probably the only person. Oh pressing. my gosh. That was, especially, it was like, <laughs> all right, this, you guys are following my life. This is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always had these on CD. This is one of the first that got ripped to, you know, to Lostless. One of the first that was on my, on all my digital playlists. But it was so great to get this on, on record. And the guys at Light really the Attic, neat. just a shout out, fantastic archival group. One of the best labels for reissues that's out there. They've just done tremendous work. I haven't heard of Brad pressing from them yet. That's excellent. Glad to hear that. Chris, do you have any... Uh before we forget about asking you. No, it's, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, what I, I definitely can hear Bob Dylan. That wasn't my first thought. I, okay. Like, from, vocally from Mark, my first thought was, like, he has such a... I, I definitely hear Bob Dylan. Okay. I heard, like, very Johnny Cash and Jim Morrison. Okay. Just because he has kind of a deep, like, a beautiful, like, deep voice and it really works yeah. uh, alongside the the music especially i mean i thought the album was really good sheila and in spite of me i i loved the in spite of me track that was just like i don't know there was just something some, something that just caught me immediately that i was just like this is really good yeah and uh yeah so I, it reminded me it, i definitely heard not just because of the saxophone but very jazzy blues like post-punk Kind of like, you know, like in that grunge era, obviously, like you were saying, like just on the edge of like, not necessarily grunge, but like definitely has a little bit of a hint of that. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought the album overall was, was pretty good. For sure. You want to hear facts. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, Jeff, Jeff already started uh, giving us some facts. He gave us facts. I don't know if I can give any facts that you might not know, but maybe our listeners wouldn't know. Right. Right. So yeah, let's let's hear the let's hear the facts. Yeah. So um, uh, like you said, this is the second album by uh, Morphine, and the original drummer um, Jerome Dupree actually quit due to health problems when they were recording this album, and was replaced by uh, Billy Conway. Oh wow! Also, interestingly, a uh, number of tracks were featured on fairly well-known movies and shows, uh, specifically. Uh, I actually, uh, this is a more of an independent film, but Spanking the Monkey had Sheila in spite of me. Beavis and Butthead uh, had an episode that featured the song Thursday. Uh, Buena uh, uh, appeared in The Sopranos and in the Daria episode. Oh, no um, shit. Yeah. And so... Uh, so I've definitely heard this, but, but yes. I just didn't know. Wow. Right, right. Well, yeah, ex- exactly. Like, you know, unless you look at the end of the credits where it says what sure. the, the songs sure. were which you're you know, like who does that i mean yeah you pretty much after the credits are rolling you're pretty much just uh turning it off unless you're really interested in seeing the credits right but uh yeah so as of 
2017. Uh, it's actually it's sold 661,000 copies in the United States at this point. Wow. And uh, I imagine that it being pressed by Light in the Attic in 2011 had something to do with like you know furthering uh, those numbers. And I'm guessing that that pressing that was done in 2011 is the only pressing that was done so far. Wow. How many copies do you know? Of that press? Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at Light in the Attic, but okay. I can't imagine it's more than a couple thousand. Right. I'm sure it's kind of, kind of a limited. limited release there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. But uh, yeah, really cool stuff, though. I mean, like, it was, it, it, it was well-known. Mm-hmm. Well, it's. I think this this repress has gotten the band's gotten a little bit more heat behind them. Um, sure, it's allowed some other albums to come out that were never going to be put out in any format. Right. Um, so it's really neat to see some of this other music coming to light for for those of us who love the band. It's there's now a live sure. record, live at the Warfield came out, which is fantastic, um, and then two albums for from side projects that featured. Both the drummers, you know, Mark without Mark, you know, just all this group of people that play together in the scene in Boston. It's really neat to see how much additional attention has been given to given to the band. So kind of nice for those of us who've been fans for a long time. It's like to hear something fresh that you've never, ever, ever heard outside of, you know, maybe you caught the original radio broadcast back, you know, back in the 90s. Right. Just another feather in vinyl's cap, right? It just brings back and it revives things in a way that is unexpected. We've found new bands by doing this podcast countless times now. Oh my God, I love it. I absolutely and, love and it. And just has opened up our, you know, like we like to think of ourselves as being like explorers of music and, and all of our guests have uh, opened our minds and our ears. Yeah, and, and I can, great. I'll second that as an outsider that just got to, get a little peek at sort of your your musical collections and the things that you guys are into. I mean, it is super eclectic. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they are all over the place. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. For, for but sure. But I had the man. same sort of, I also, I feel the same way that I've got this, you know, really broad eclectic taste and I'm looking at like, there's maybe 20% intersection in the stuff that we're into. Uh, right, but I'm like, right, right. These are a lot of bands that maybe I just don't know and need to get into, or I missed that scene yeah. by a couple of years, or I wasn't in that city and I kind of missed what was yeah. happening. Right, um, right. I think it's a very exciting time right now for music because streaming just became just the thing. And again, not to knock streaming because there are so many you know pros, but the fact that it just became, I guess, kind of more disposable. Music wasn't. I don't know. It it didn't feel as special, and it was just you paid your ten bucks a month, and you 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 can you can stream and you can access anything, and it just again it felt disposable. Along comes vinyl, and even though you have like this this whole world of music that you can just explore through this digital platform, I'm not sitting there looking up like bands I never heard of for no reason. Vinyl right, right. gives you an experience and a reason to look for a different band to uh, look to look for music that you're not you're not normally going to listen to, that's going to be outside of you know your kind of box. And Antonio, we've talked about this many times yeah. where the music with vinyl isn't the only part of the art. Mm. You've got the if you have a color variant, <laughs> yeah, the color of the of the vinyl is art. 
You've got the jacket with the photo on it, which is art. You got the liner notes. The liner notes. You have, notes. The, you have, the, you have the gatefold, oh, the pictures, dude. everything. Everything's part of a package where you have multiple artists that make this beautiful uh, collector's item. If you know, and 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 on top of it, and you've done it too. And I'm uh, maybe Jeff, you've done it. And this is a way that we find new artists too, where we'll see a color variant that we're like, that is gorgeous. <laughs> I, right? I have to just I have to just listen to the music just to see if I like we'll listen to a couple tracks. I'm like, I got to buy that. I just have to buy it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's happened. That has happened to me yeah. at, le- at least twice uh, right. in my short time of collecting. For a lot of touring acts, this is a, a really valuable way for them to reach their fans because it Absolutely. is hard. But I'm right with you guys. You have that tactile connection now and it feels like you're speaking right to the artist a bit more. When you're playing a physical yes. record, yes, uh, and, and for a lot really. of them, if they're if they're touring, they're they're not selling compact discs for the most part. You know, it's, right. maybe they're doing live no, shows. Not a- you know, but they're selling merch and they're selling records. Right, that's right, and that's and autographs look great on LPs. <laughs> yes, yes, they, <laughs> they do. Gold, silver, do. black. Awesome, Jeff. So again, thank you so so much for coming on our show. Thank you for talking again about Macintosh about Sumiko, about Project USA, and for sharing your thoughts on Cure for Pain by Morphine. Jeff, if you have anything that you want to leave our listeners with, any last words, now's the time. Oh, man. Uh, keep those records clean, people. They'll last your lifetime. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Check us out on Instagram at Taste of Vinyl and on Twitter at Taste Vinyl. And remember, you can never own too much vinyl. Bye, guys. Later. Later.